The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Stocks are in a strong rally mode this week following a dovish Fed meeting on Wednesday and a jump in the unemployment rate as the job market weakens. Job growth fell last month with only 150,000 jobs created, a good portion of those jobs coming from government, healthcare, and leisure. Manufacturing activity also slowed, snapping a three-month of expansion. A weakening economy helped to ignite a rally in bonds as yields fell below 5% on the 2- and 10-year note and the 30-year bond. After touching 5% last week, the 10-year note is down to 4.57. Expectations for rate hikes next month have fallen to just 10%. Many are now saying the Fed is done with rate hikes and are now looking at rate cuts coming as soon as June and next year as recession predictions gather momentum. Real estate and utilities were some of the strongest sectors within the market. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, John Kozar from Asbury Research joins me as he sees a rally that could take us to the end of the year. John likes energy, technology, and real estate. Later on in the program, Frank Holmes joins me as we discuss the gold market and the largest buying of gold by central banks in nearly half a century. Frank discusses why he likes gold and silver royalty companies. And finally, a special extended show this week as Chris Sheridan and myself discuss 10 parallels of today to the 60s and 70s. Many of them are going to surprise you, including the present Hamas war. But first, let's find out the stories moving the market this week with Ryan Paplava. It's hard keeping track of sentiment around economic results, but the current adage is bad is good, but too bad would be bad. Put another way, slow and steady growth is what investors in the Fed want to see as the risks of high inflation and economic contraction are still considerable. This week, earnings, economics, and the Fed were at the heart of stocks rallying. I guess you could say that oversold conditions were also a catalyst to allow for the best returns in stocks in a single week this year. Let's focus on the Fed first, as the Fed announces policy decision for the month on Wednesday. Nothing happened unexpectedly. The Fed left rates unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. In the press conference, it was clear the Fed has no intentions of lowering interest rates or for making changes to its balance sheet runoff plans, aka quantitative tightening. Chairman Powell acknowledged the length rates have come and the risks of doing too little are balanced now against doing too much. Will the Fed hike again soon? According to the Fed funds, futures not likely. The CME FedWatch tool isn't pricing any more hikes over the next 12 months and instead shows the possibility of two cuts over the same period. Directly after the meeting, stocks rallied and the two and 10-year treasury yields dropped with the 10-year falling to 4.79% after hitting 4.92% overnight. Rates also fell this week on subpar economic results. The 10-year Treasury yield fell again on Thursday on softening manufacturing PMI data out of the Eurozone, in addition to Q3 productivity report that showed a 0.8% decline in unit labor costs. The European Central Bank also left rates unchanged at 5.25%. The 10-year fell another 12 basis points to 4.67% on the news. The 10-year Treasury yield fell again on Friday to 4.51% to finish the week down 31 basis points on the October Employment Situation Report, which showed slower payroll growth, rising unemployment, and slower wage growth. In addition to that report, the October ISM Services PMI dropped to 51.8 from 53.6, showing a slowdown in services. Speaking of economics, there was a long list of reports besides the ones already mentioned. Consumer confidence fell slightly in October to 103.6 from a revised 104.3 as a result of higher interest rates and rising prices. The manufacturing ISM report showed a significant drop from 49 down to 46.7 that helped to cool down rates midweek. Construction spending cooled to 0.4% growth 
from a revised 1% showing that a hard landing is not a scenario from these results when you look at the year-over-year growth. Job openings are turning higher at 9.55 million in September, up from the previous month with the low in this year in July. In another report, layoff announcements were down 22% for October, but the job cuts year-to-date at 641,000 is the highest January to October total since 2009, excluding the pandemic, with a quarter of the cuts stemming from the technology sector. Earnings were solid this week, according to FactSet, 81% of companies in the S&P 500 have reported actual results, with 82% reporting above estimates, which is above the 5- and 10-year averages. Blended earnings, so estimates on top of actual results for the third quarter, is growth of 3.7% as of Friday, up from the previous week at 2.6%, and up from expectations for an earnings decline at the end of the third quarter. On the positive side, Expedia up 17.9, Paramount Global up 14.5, Cloudflare up 13.2, Starbucks up 9.5, Generac up 14.4, Advanced Micro Devices up 9.7, Qualcomm up 5.8, and Pinterest up 19% were some of this week's best earning highlights. On Semiconductor, down 21.8, Paycom Software down 38.5, Match Group down 15.4, SD Lauder down 18.9, Fortinet down 14.4, and Bill.com down 25.6% following their announcements were some of the worst performing stocks on earnings. So that sums up this week's response with falling rates on falling or subpar economic results and the Fed's outlook seeing risks of doing too much or not enough as equally important, which then resulted in a buy the dip mentality and short covering in stocks. Up next, this week's guest technician, John Kosar. Mark Faber is the editor and publisher of the widely read Gloom, Boom, and Doom report. You can follow all of his work and sign up for his newsletter at gloomboomdoom.com. Well, no period in history is exactly the same as before, but there are similarities to the 70s. And there, I have to say, the current bear market in stock markets around the world and also in the U.S. reminds me very much of what happened then because we had declines, then rallies again, and then declining trends, and then rallies again. It was constantly interrupted, but investors always had the hope that it was over and that the bull market would return, and it never happened. I think that inflation in the Western world has uh, the potential to exceed expectations because the mess that the central banks and the governments have created in the Western world in terms of fiscal deficits and unfunded liabilities that the government has will make it, in my view, necessary for money printing. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsensewealth.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, for investors this week, there's probably a little better news. Stocks have been going up, but is the correction over or is there more pain ahead of us? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is John Kosar from Asbury Research. John, you've developed a couple of unique metrics and one is your Asbury 6. It's sort of a gauge of market health. Why don't we begin with that? What is the Asbury 6 telling you right now about the market? Asbury 6 is just briefly, we did some back testing with a couple of dozen of my favorite tactical tools that I've used throughout my career. And we were looking to find a group of them 
that were different enough where they just weren't variations of a theme, but rather no indicator works all the time. So we wanted a short list of diverse indicators that could tactically tell us every day what the health of the market is internally. It's updated every day. So it's very fast twitch and sensitive. But we did that because of the nature of the market now. You saw last week, the S&P was up, I think there was two days last week, it was up 40 in the morning. And by the end of the day, it was down 40. You're getting these 100-point swings, and it's really difficult to stay on a good idea with these jagged moves every day, threatening, you know, forcing you out, so to speak, or making you double clutch on what may be a great idea. So the model has been negative since it's moved a couple of times since there then, but it's been negative since August the 4th. So about a week or so after we peaked on July the 27th, it's currently negative now, but some of the six metrics are starting to turn green. They're starting to turn positive. And that means we broadly that tactically we're at a decision point and it could mean that we are beginning a new rally off the recent lows. And you have another model. It's called your correction protection that sort of gets you out if uh, there's a big downturn coming. What is that saying today? The difference between those two, by the way, is the purpose of both of those is to keep you close to the S&P, very close to the S&P, but with much less risk. The difference between them is the Esbury 6 is much more sensitive. There's about nine round turns a year on average going back over the past five years. CPM is a little bit more sticky. There's four round turns a year there. That has been risk off since October the 25th, and it's still risk off right now. And again, that one's a little bit less sensitive to the day-to-day. So in short, they're both negative or risk off now, but the Esbury 6 is showing some indications that the market's feeling around for a bottom. Okay. So those two are negative. Is there anything that is looking attractive, something that's breaking out or something where you're seeing fund flows into a sector? Yeah. Let's talk about broadly first. Okay. Broadly, there are metrics that we look at that are strategic in nature. You know, strategic for us is one to several quarters out. Tactical is one month or 21 business days. So strategically, you've got a lot of extremes that look similar to what we saw in October of last year. You've got standard deviation metrics that we look at indicating that the market is out of balance, right? It's too negative. There's market breadth metrics that are also suggesting an extreme in negativity. You see that in investor sentiment. We look at three, four different investor sentiment metrics, including the investor's intelligence data of which were an input for them. Those are all suggesting to me that we could be within a week or two of a bottom that will take us through the end of the year. Has it been signaled? Has it been confirmed yet? No. I need the Esbury 6 to turn back to green and I need the CPM to show me risk on again. But that's the setup, right? We're at these extremes that very much look like mid-October of 2022, but we haven't had the confirming internal strength to tell me it's time to pull the trigger, but we're getting close. Okay. So there is a possibility that we could get that year-end Santa Claus rally. I think so. And investor sentiment for me is really a secondary, if not a tertiary indicator. I don't think investor sentiment is enough typically to change the trend, but I think it could either enhance or inhibit whatever the trend is. And November, the month of November is the seasonally strongest month of the year in the S&P 500 based on data going back to 1957. And if you break that down into a quarter, during the fourth quarter, the first, the second, and the final weeks of November are the three seasonally strongest weeks in the S&P 500 of the fourth quarter based on that same data. So you've got all this stuff that these diverse metrics that are setting up the potential for a rally. So yeah, the longer I do this, the less forecasting and the looking into the crystal ball that I do, and the more following the data that I do. It's just a lot more accurate. I don't have to make a year-end forecast on what the exact index level is going to be on New Year's Eve. That show business, 
The investment business is understanding that we're at a potential bottom here and then knowing, having good enough tactical tools to get you into that developing trend at a good level. And that's kind of where we're at. I want to move on to another market. And we're seeing something that, John, we probably haven't seen in such a long time, and that's treasury yields. And it's not just treasury yields, it's the volatility in treasuries. I mean, we began the beginning of the year, the thought process, the recession was postponed to this year. So we were going to have a recession. People were jumping into getting back into the bond market after being beaten up severely last year. And people went long. It looked good for part of the year. But if you take you know, an ETF like TLT, which is treasuries, that thing's down to almost 24%. So two years of back-to-back double-digit losses. Let's talk about something you and I haven't seen since probably, what, 2006 or 2007. And that's 5% treasury yields. Yeah. Very interestingly, and you and I talked about this briefly before we started the recording, is the linear correlation, I mean, everyone generically says, you know, bonds are more important, I think. Bonds drive stock prices. And from 32,000 feet, that's correct. But in terms of their linear correlation to each other, they move in and out. So if you look at the past one year, three years, five years, the linear correlation between stocks and bonds is not what I would call statistically significant. But over the past three months, they've tightened up like a drum. You know, the correlation is 0.9, you know, statistically over the past three months. So that to me just says how much more important the day-to-day influence of interest rates have become on the stock market because we're at this big level. 433 was a huge level last year. That represented the peak of the 10-year that we made in June of 08, right? So last year, we got right up to there, beginning to middle of October of last year, we got right up to that old level, and then we backed off and we quickly went back below 4%. That was the catalyst, or certainly not maybe the catalyst, but maybe one of the major catalysts of the bottom that we had last year on October 13th of 2022. So this year, we came right back there. I'm looking at the chart now. We came right back to test that level middle to, let's just call it July, during July. And it broke through there, broke through that 433 this time. And that was what turn the market, the stock market. It peaked on July the 27th and we've dropped, I don't know what, eight, you know, 10% from there. I don't have the chart in front of me. So now we're at this other level. 5% is a big fat round number that everybody likes, right? They like these numbers. So we're at a 5% 10 year. And like you said, well, we haven't seen this in a long time. Actually, the last time that we saw it, a 5% 10 year, we had to go back to June of 07. So that's where we are now. 534 is actually the level. Those are the peaks from June of 07. And then there's another similar peak in June of 06. And if we want to go back further, there's another similar peak from 02. So what does that mean? That means this is not only a big inflection, a long-term inflection point for interest rates, but probably for stocks. So taking that and tying it in with what I said, that there are some market extremes and breadth and standard deviation in sentiment, how does that dovetail with what we're seeing in rates? Well, if we hold this 5% to 534, which is this big, huge area that goes back a couple of decades and rates back off from there, which I think is more likely than just blowing through this 20-year level that at first crack, which I think is highly unlikely. If we get a backing off from the 5% level back down between now and Christmas, that's going to be your fuel for whatever rally may become emerge out of this 4,200 level, which is hugely important in the S&P 500. That could be a big catalyst in moving the market higher so we have a good fourth quarter this year. To me, that's the most likely scenario. And let's move on to another area. Let's talk about commodities. We saw oil spike up to 90 on the day you and I are speaking. It's around 82. Brent's at 86. We've got gold hovering close to 2,000. What's your take on commodities here? Commodities, I knew you were going to ask me. So I was buzzing through about 50 commodity charts before I was on with you this morning. And there's a narrow group that are doing well. I mean, it's primarily been energy and of late, it's been gold. So let's look at gold first. 
Gold's been a, uh, for me, I'm not one of these guys that always needs to have some gold in my portfolio. I want gold in my portfolio if it's outperforming the S&P. If it's not outperforming the S&P, to me, why be in gold? So we've been in and out of gold a couple of times this year. We bought gold middle of December of last year and held it until, uh, I'm just kind of looking at the chart, until May. And we moved out of gold. The reason I know this so well is they have a client that asks me every week about gold. You know, is it time to buy gold? Is it time to buy gold? And they're one of these folks that feel like you need gold in your portfolio. And I'm trying to tell them to wait for the timing of this. So I made a phone call to, let's call him Jeff, on October the 19th and told him I think it was time to buy gold again. Why? Because gold started outperforming the S&P again on a quarterly basis and GLD got back through the 200-day moving average. We broke a trend line that dated back to May of this year. So GLD is currently trading at, let's call it 183.50. If we can get through this level that we've been testing, which is roughly 186, I think we retest the highs that we made back in May, which are about 191. So I like gold. We're long gold. And as long as it continues to relatively outperform the market, I think it's a good place to be right now. I'm looking at silver miners maybe emerging as a buy. They're not quite there yet. I've been watching gold miners. I'm clicking through some of these now as I speak with you. And so there's some sporadic strength. Miners, I wouldn't touch right now. I'd stick with GLD. And then you mentioned oil, oil, energy. So I look at XLE, one of our models, you actually mentioned that model earlier and I didn't get a chance to respond to it. Another one of our models is called CEF, and CEF stands for Sector ETF Asset Flows. And CEF, I'm getting there right now. Give me 10 seconds or less. Our CEF model basically tracks the movement of money around the 11 sector spiders, and it goes to those where the money is going, and it avoids those where the money's coming from. It's, had a, it's done really well. It's outperformed 10 of the past 13 quarters versus the S&P, you know, with our back testing. But right now, the favored ones from the three strongest, starting with the strongest, are XLE, technology, and believe it or not, real estate has actually showed up on our model. There's been a you know, some money kind of quietly moving back into the real estate realm. So energy's been kind of stalled out here. I'm going back to the chart on XLE. And basically what happened with XLE, which is the energy sector spider for those that aren't following the ticker, we had a peak there in June of 22. And we tested it again in November of 22. And we're bumping up. At, we tested it again in January of this year. And then in uh September, just a couple of months ago, and we're negotiating that. That level is about 94 bucks a share. If we get through those old highs, we can really see a big, there's been multiple tests of that level, as I just mentioned. That's what's holding, technically, that's what's holding it back right now. In terms of relative basis, which is what our CEF model cares about is relative. Our model went overweight on July the 31st, and it's still overweight now, and we've captured about 7% of relative about performance. We've had as much as 12. We've given some of that back. So those are the levels to watch. XLE is sitting on its 200-day moving average right now, which is, uh, let's call it 85 bucks a share. And the level that we need to break out from is about $93, $94 a share. Above $94 a share, we can see a very significant sustained move higher in XLE. And I know that the linear correlation between XLE and crude oil prices isn't tight and stable all the time, but generally speaking, they move together. So given this, what would you be looking at in the next week or two to tell you, okay, looks like we're getting into that rally mode and it's time to put some money to work? It's a great question. One of our inputs for the Asbury 6 is volatility via the VIX, the CBO Market Volatility Index, and a very simple tool and probably the most day-to-day -day sensitive tool to what the fear level is in the market is I had mentioned earlier that 21 business days is Asbury Research's tactical timeframe. So the VIX, I'm pulling up a chart of this, the VIX moved above its 21-day moving average most recently on 920. Since then, the S&P has dropped by getting my mouse in position, 
by 7.1%. The VIX dropped below its 21-day moving average on the close yesterday. And so far today, it's underneath it also. To me, this is the first tangible indication that the market is shedding enough fear, feeling comfortable enough to actually sustain a rally for more than just a day or two. That moving average obviously changes a little bit every day. It's at 1884 today. So just as a back of the envelope, things are in place for a rally. A lot of things have to happen. Volume has to get better. It has not done that yet. But I think even more important or more sensitive certainly is the VIX. The market needs to become calm enough to be able to sustain more than a one or a two day jerk up and then the market falls back down again. That's starting to happen in the VIX now. All right. Well, listen, John, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you guys do at Asbury, how can they do so? Well, I think if you like our approach and what I was talking about today to markets and investing, you should visit the Asbury Research YouTube channel and you can subscribe there if you like. There's a lot of content there that explains how our data-driven models work. It's also the home of our Follow the Money bi-weekly podcast, which I think our next one is coming up this Sunday. The other thing, if you're interested in our services and pricing, a little bit more detail there, visit asburyresearch.com, go to the contact tab, and if you mentioned Financial Sense in the little query box, we'll follow up with some special pricing for Financial Sense listeners. We appreciate your time today. All right, John, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the program. Have a nice holiday and safe rest of the year. Thank you. It's great to talk to you, Jim. Inflation is showing signs of an uptick, particularly in the dominant sector of the economy, which is services spending. This presents a challenge for the Federal Reserve as it implies that borrowing costs for significant purchases like housing and autos are persistently climbing. Analysts from Moody's Analytics and Bloomberg Economics suggest that this could be setting the stage for either a slowdown or a mild recession in the first half of 2024. Our current guest, however, believes this outlook might be leaning a bit towards the optimistic side. Right now, inflation remains elevated, and obviously it's been accelerating for a few months now. And, and really the reason is consumption has remained elevated. So if you look at the quarter before the NBER has declared historical recessions and the quarter prior to that, so quarters one and two before a recession, the average GDP print in annualized terms is over 2%. So you almost always see reasonably strong GDP growth prior to recessions. And there are some examples where the growth is extremely strong. The quarter before the 1960 recession, real GDP grew at a 9% annualized clip. So if you thought 4.8% was strong, it was twice as strong in 1960 and you still saw a recession. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. We've got some turbulence in the market, both in stocks and bonds, but one area that's doing well right now is the price of gold. Is it heading higher? Will we see new records? Let's find out. Joining us on the program from U.S. Global is Frank Combs. Frank, I, I want to talk about the gold market. On the day you and I are speaking, it's over 2,000. But if you look at some of the broader gold indexes, GDX, the gold equities have not been confirming. I'd like to get your take here. What's going on here? Well, I, I think it's uh, much more of a, a sentiment factor. If you take a look at the price of gold, in six other major currencies, uh, gold is making 40-year highs. When you look at the dollar, it's it's basically following yields. So when we look at the two, five, and 10-year government bond yields, they have continued to surge this year, and that has made the dollar surge along with it. And that makes 
it basically starts to slow down in the look of inflation for America, but it's actually uh, distorting the gold stocks because most of the gold producers are outside of the U.S., their production. So actually, they're they're doing uh, quite well, the companies. But to me, it's much more of a sentiment factor. Um, but I will share with you that when I look at the universe of 100 gold producers and I compare how many, what percentage have a free cash flow yield, it was running over 60% and it fell to about 45%. So the inflation and in these companies to maintain their operating capex that they need or any expansion, the inflation has hit them that is impacting their operating cash flow because there's no huge increase in the new supply. So I, I would say to you that Operating when you have free cash flow, uh, it is a key factor for non-gold investors. They will go and buy each quarter and rebalance their portfolios looking for just any stock. They don't care if it's gold, oil or gas, whatever. You'll see a sector rotation on who is generating the highest free cash flow yield. And, and the gold stocks have basically been spending more money uh, maintaining that production or slightly increasing that production. But it doesn't really, it's just short term, I think you have to take on the Bitcoin um, mindset that is buy the dip and hold on for dear life. Don't get so quick to jump out of it. Gold has been a wonderful asset class this century. It has doubled the S&P performance. It has done what it's supposed to do. And the gold stocks that have a strong cash flow multiple, they themselves are, are very attractive buys. In fact, Newmont's dividend yield is equivalent to a five-year government bond yield. So getting a yield that's equivalent to a five-year and getting gold exposure on the upside, and uh, Newmont's just a classic, a uh, very attractive gold stock. You know, that's one thing. I'm glad you brought that up because something that exists today that we didn't have in the 00 decade, you you, you mentioned uh, Newmont, uh, you could look at Barrick. You're getting yields on the gold stocks that we didn't have two decades ago. Or 10 years ago. I mean, the, the, the yields are uh, extremely competitive with a five-year government bond. The S&P doesn't pay a five-year government bond yield. What's most interesting to me when I first started the business a long time ago, Jim, and uh, it was um, a basic quant model in Canada of looking at the dividend yields and, and how institutions of pension funds put money into dividend-paying stocks and it appeared at that time, and it still does today, that they look at the relative five-year government risk-free yield versus the dividend-paying or growth in the dividend-paying stock. And and what, whenever you see the a stock like a Newmont paying a yield higher than a five-year government bond yield, it makes Newmont an extremely contrarian, attractive buy because you're getting something as an inflation hedge. Uh, and the same thing with Barrick. You know, the one thing I'm also saying too, I think there's more financial discipline this time around compared to the 00 decade where, you know, they were buying companies, not, not paying attention to what they were paying for gold in the ground. Now there's a lot more discipline, more stronger balance chain. So I think they're in better shape today. I would agree with that. And I think a lot of the, what happened in this previous cycle is and what we've seen since I first started the business in 78, the life cycle, and they like sometimes call it the Lasan cycle of mining, but the, the old life cycle of a mine, which is exploration, development, production, uh, that cycle used to be eight years. You had a discovery, immediately went through this process of, of pre-feasibility, feasibility, got into production. It was about eight years. Today, it's 28 years. So you've seen this incredible expensive elongation from the date of discovery to the date of production. And a lot of these juniors are very, very inexpensive uh, on that relative attractiveness. So I think gold stocks are extremely inexpensive on a relative basis. You know, the other thing I think investors are forgetting here, if you go back to 2018, Frank, you had gold roughly around 1,200 to a little under. So from 2018, it goes from 1,200 almost all the way to 2000. That's a hell of a run in a short period of time. So it's not unusual, at least in my opinion, to see a little bit of consolidation after you have the big run up like that. Mm -hmm. 
And you just have the courage, you know, to have that 10% uh, minimum. Ray Dalio, the largest hedge fund in the world, has got a gold thesis. And uh, he has a 10% and sometimes up to 25% uh, parity trading with gold as, as the key asset class to rotate around with. And I think investors have to have that discipline that you buy good value or you buy bullion uh, on the dips and uh, you will get this, these runs uh, where they take off. Right? And I think that's just that that reality that we have to listen. But what's happened, what I've seen from the Bitcoin ecosystem because of high blockchain is is that it remains even though it's in a bear cycle it it the the ecosystem of young people have are much more courage in buying the dip and holding on uh the conferences have thousands of people attending spending a thousand dollars a person from retail to institutional to attend uh you you're not getting that in the junior gold mining uh ecosystem where there are packed rooms of people want to know what the next hot deal is at exploration. You have seen it in lithium uh, because of Tesla and the Tesla buyer goes out and buys uh, lithium uh, junior mining stock because they know they need lithium. There's a shortage of lithium needed for the, all, all these battery, batteries that are needed for uh, the Tesla uh, EV car. So I, I think that you're seeing that this is probably one of the quietest places is the junior mining exploration and development and producers and that usually lends itself that, that that's where the upside will come from. And it's when everyone packs the room that wants to know about the latest gold mining stock, that's usually a time to be a seller. And today's a time to be a buyer. You know, another thing that I've noticed, too, uh, is this run up from about 1,200 to almost 2,000. In the last couple of years, individual investors have been big sellers of gold. I think I read it was like 600 tons uh, selling in ETFs. But on the other side, central banks have been some of the biggest buyers that we've seen in years. So what does that tell you? That there's a lack of trust in government's currencies. Um, and, and so you see in the crypto ecosystem, there's tremendous concern on the World Economic Forum influencing governments, uh, influencing, they have their leadership program, policies in America, policies in Canada, and then they have the influence on the UN. And and so you see now BlackRock comes up with some statement that they're not going to be able to do this big green transformation unless they turn around and stop attacking mining. Mining is not evil and bad. And so I think it's really interesting to see BlackRock, which is the, the biggest a collection of, of, of funds and ETFs and private uh, pension fund consulting of, of a fund management company in the world that that all of a sudden their concern regarding this sort of anti-mining. And, and to me, that's a positive statement because it's negative. And every, when it's negative like that, it's usually positive for contrarian investing. Even Robert Friedland uh, sent it out with Ivanhoe Mines, uh, what uh, uh, BlackRock statements were. So I, I think that you, know, you just have to have this courage and this conviction that if you do believe in this great green transformation, uh, that you're going to need uh, mining. And it's not just gold mining, you're going to need all mining as a whole. Uh, and I and I think that that if you start seeing funds flow in, then you'll get into this into this category of just mining as a subset of the S and P five hundred. All the valuations will go through a reset button, uh, and and I think that probably gold is bodes the best because central banks are buying gold because they don't trust all this paper money. And what we've witnessed since 2000, 2001, was this MMT, modern monetary theory, push as a solution to every government policy problem is just print more money. And, and it just requires buckets and buckets of more money uh, to do anything. And I think that that's become a great concern. Now, the onslaught of the BRIC countries attacking uh, the U.S. and making it as a bad money, et cetera, what people don't realize is that China, which is leading this charge, and I wrote a piece about this, they're also allegedly funding the immigrants coming in through Mexico and and funding fentanyl and uh, and Russia funding Africans coming across into Italy etc. Uh, it's it's a sort of new war policy around the world. Well, I find it all interesting because 
China's and Russia are both closed economies. There is no Facebook. There's no Instagram. You can't do this type of video streaming we're doing now and have an open discourse. Uh, it's very closed. And in fact, uh, uh, friends of mine that were recently there said you can't use your visa, your MasterCard, or your American Express in China. Uh, you have to upload into a WePay or use their Unipay credit card because they control all money. So how can they be the currency of the world when they have a two-tier system? It's like the problems in Argentina. Uh, and we see this the same thing as with Russia. So what happens now is they, all this news of a big bond trade with the yuan for oil, etc. The only way they can facilitate is immediately convert that yuan into dollars. Uh, the Saudis have to convert it. So you're seeing actually more global trade in U.S. dollars than the euro. It's probably having a bigger negative impact on the euro. Uh, and the last thing I share with you, I was recently in Europe, uh, in Amsterdam, and I was in uh, in Italy. Um, you don't see, talk about this global ecosystem. When you're in Italy, you're just going to see Italian wines. You're in Spain, you're going to see Spanish wines. Uh, in Argentina, you're going to see Argentine wines. In Chile, you're going to see Chilean wines. You're in America. You're going to see Argentine, Italian, Spanish, Chilean wines, uh, Napa wines. You're going to see the whole open economy. Uh, and, and so you can easily see when you go to restaurants, when you look at the menu, how contained it is with tariffs, et cetera. So I think that America still is the leader in sort of a, a much more open economy than, than many of the, the countries in Europe um, and in Latin America. I want to talk about, you, know, you mentioned MMT. And the thing that really struck me, Frank, is I think it took us 92 days to go from 32 trillion to 33 trillion in debt. We hit that September 19th. Fast forward a month later, we just added another close to 700 billion in debt. Nobody's talking about this as much as they should. I, I know it's a great comment because I watched a clip the other day of an interview of Mitch McConnell and, um, and he stayed wide awake. He did not have any type of freeze moment. And uh, and it was it was very articulate on on what's happening in America. So we have an incredible military, which is Eisenhower was the, was the person that characterized it as the industrial military complex and uh, and all the public companies you can see that are in the military uh, rearmament. Those stocks have been on a tear. Just like semiconductors have been on a tear in the technology sector, uh, we're talking about twenty um, percent uh, compounded annual growth rates for the past decade. So that's that's quite quite a big uh, tagger when you compare it to the overall economy. Uh, and, and so what he commented was is that we're basically selling or giving away our old military equipment to the Ukraine to fight Russia while we're rearming. We're rearming uh, all with uh, this great rearmament, and that's what's driving a lot of those stocks in America. And, and that, I think, is a concern over the drama we see in, in Israel now uh, and China, what it's doing in, in the Southeast Asia. Um, so we, we are th all this money seems to be sustaining the economy because we have a, a rip-roaring GDP number that just came out, which shocked everybody. Uh, why is because the military-industrial complex appears to be on fire and is doing spectacularly well, and they're high-paying jobs. Uh, we know here in San Antonio, Texas, the NSA, second biggest complex of workers is in San Antonio. Well, that's 3,000 highly paid workers um, protecting our economy uh, from as much as possible from cybersecurity and attacks, etc. So it, it is this this is rebuilding is where the, all that I believe that money is going and then sustaining the economic engine because when you look at housing, uh, when you look at delinquency and credit cards, it all says we should be in a big recession. When you look at PMIs uh, for Europe, they appear to a bottom, but they're not on a tear. They're all below 50. So America should be, but America's not. And I believe a lot of that money is is for the military complex and, and it'll maintain itself in growth this year going into next year. Yeah, that's one of the, my contentions. One of the reasons you would have thought with the aggressive rate hikes by the Fed, 
And you remember in 2022, the first two quarters were negative. Everybody thought we were going into recession. But I think we've increased spending by almost seven and a half trillion dollars. That has got to be keeping this thing afloat. Yes, uh, that's that's what based on that interview. And it was sort of clever because the uh, newscaster was trying to say, well, you agree with Biden. And uh, he said only on the foreign policy, not the domestic policy. Um, which I thought was just, I got a chuckle out of this debate that goes on all the time because I write about this and I write that you don't become too fixated on the government political party. You've got to be fixated on their policies. You have to make, you should be making decisions on their policies. And whenever the monetary and fiscal policies, it doesn't matter who's in charge, become imbalanced then gold shines. And the greater the imbalance, the more significant gold goes up in that country's currency. And we can see this in other governments' currencies around the world, why gold is making 40-year highs, uh, because there's a greater imbalance between those other nature's monetary and fiscal policies. And now what is monetary and fiscal policy? Well, it's interest rates and money supply, printing, and fiscal policy is tax regulation and spending. So whenever you get a lag or you get a, an excess of spending or excessive regulations, these imbalances usually show up in a country's currency. And I believe that many other central banks are seeing this and gold is becomes a safe place for this trust factor in, in foreign reserves. Well, you know, when you take a look at at least what I find very attractive, even though you haven't seen the gold stocks take off as much as they should, given where gold is, but Frank, as we talked about earlier, for the first time, you're getting yields on gold stocks that are equivalent to treasuries. So it's not like you're owning a stock that doesn't give you anything in return. You're getting actual cash flow into your wallet from these gold stocks. And you're giving a hedge to uh, inflation, maintaining where it is. These stocks will go through a re-rating. There is no doubt. You know, Newman went through a big acquisition. So these acquisitions always take like birthing, giving having a baby. They take nine months to digest. And the value metrics on a per share basis start to populate through the filings every quarter, et cetera. So it's usually uh, on a big acquisition like Newman went through. That's usually a good buying opportunity because the non-gold investor uh, buys just on that free cash flow yield. They immediately sell, and then all of a sudden it starts to turn up again. The free cash flow yield uh, becomes more attractive, and then the generals come in buying those stocks. I, I think if we do get a BlackRock and Vanguard and Fidelity mindset change for the mining sector, why it's critical for the green movement, um, then, then I think that gold stocks will be one of the first to get a big re-rating. You know, the interesting thing about this is you can take the entire mining sector, including gold, silver, the base metal companies, and they're a fraction of the market cap of Apple. And what you see, at least I've seen, is when money does wake up to the fact that, hey, there's value, there's a reason you want to own this, these things take off like a rocket. So if you're not in it, you could miss in one week a major move. Well, that, that's you know a reason why I love the royalty companies and and uh, why I launched my Go Gold uh, ETF because it focused on uh, the royalty companies. Be the minimum thirty percent, sometimes up to sixty percent, end up being royalty companies on the quant approach of picking these stocks. Because when you look at Apple, they do about two million in revenue per employee. That's really attractive uh, revenue per employee. Um, Franco Nevada, which has the royalties of Nevada on Barrick and Newmont's assets, it does $34 million in revenue per employee. Uh, Newmont and Barrick are like six, dollars $700,000 of revenue employee. So I think that uh, it, that we are seeing uh, when you look at the royalty companies that many generalists are end up buying the royalty companies they get a proxy on a diversified portfolio from juniors up to mid-cap to big-cap stocks. So I know that the, one of Fidelity's biggest diversified funds, his gold equity exposure is through Franco Nevada. And another one uh, is through uh, Silver Wheaton. Um, so I, I think it's you know interesting that, that, that smart money managers that say they want to have exposure in a diversified portfolio, that they're buying the royalty 
big royalty market cap companies, and they love that revenue per employee metric. Well, we own them, so I, I agree with you 100%. And it's a nice way to sort of be in the sector with minimum risk. So, Frank, as we close here, what would you tell investors? Because as we mentioned, gold went from a little under 1200 in 2018, got all the way up to 2000 So that was one big run where it seems like a little consolidation here. What would you be doing here? Well, I got to remember that it's a China to become a global currency. It has to have more gold. And they're still so tiny. The BRIC countries don't come close to what America owns. So you're going to see continuously gold being purchased by these other countries if they really want to take on the U.S. dollar. And, and I think that that's a, a very strong bid. But 60% of gold demand is love. And, and what happens every time we get a big sell-off, we will see, and it can, it's happened for the past 24 years, demand come out of Southeast Asia to the Middle East when gold slips that they buy. So oil running up to $90, now it's back below 90. Well, that just is fortunes for uh, Saudi Arabia and, and the United Emirates. So they buy gold. And uh, so I, I think there's a very strong bid underneath any downside risk. Uh, and we have the the new big buyer has been central banks. And so I, I think we have a very sort of shiny future for the gold medal. And with silver, even more leveraged on the upside because of the need for silver for all these green infrastructure spending policies. You know, Frank, I just looked on uh, my Bloomberg and I'm looking at Franco and Silver Wheaton, big, big buyers, BlackRock and Fidelity. So they're starting to get it. Yep. All right. Well, listen, Frank, as we close, how can our listeners follow your work? You're a prolific writer. Why don't you mention some of the things Frank Talk and some of the other things you do? Well, sign up at usfunds.com. We publish a lot. We publish uh, interesting stuff on YouTube also. So you go to usfunds.com, become a, a follower of Frank Talk, uh, my weekly investor alert, which goes to 100,000 readers in 80 countries. And and see what we, we, we're active on Twitter, on Instagram, on educational. We just won more additional awards this year, over 100 awards for education. And our YouTube channel is very active in in short clips, they're two to three minutes. So if you're busy, you can listen to it on YouTube when you're driving your car. You can just listen, don't watch, uh, to our insights on global investing. All right. Well, listen, Frank, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the program. You have a wonderful holiday season and the rest of the year. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> okay. Take care, Frank. Bye-bye. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 486-3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense NewsHour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the NewsHour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. <laughs>